Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10a. Please follow along with me as I read. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and Lord, we're thankful that the battle's been won. Lord, it's, uh, for some, it's been a rough week. They've buried loved ones. For others, there's a continuing mourning of loss, or there's a battle with cancer, or you fill in the blank. <laughs> but Lord, in the midst of the crud that is on this globe, we are so grateful that we know this, the end of the story, because your son was victorious over death. And through salvation, through your son, we have his righteousness. Lord, we come to a text this morning that uh, is difficult. The words are difficult in the sense of the message that's there, but it uh, is extremely timely. Even though penned nearly 2,000 years ago, as you've promised, your word does not come back void, and it is profitable. So guide us as we go through the text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in 2 Peter chapter 2. If you've just joined us, you're a visitor, welcome to CBF. We are journeying through this epistle, which nestled in the latter part of the New Testament is extremely timely and relevant, I would argue, to where we are today. Within the annals of U.S. Secret Service, there are certain counterfeiters that stand out for their activity whether it's their audacity, it's the quality of the, the money that they 
minted, or it's just simply they couldn't get caught easily. One such individual is Mr. 880. You say, how did they come up with that name? That was his case file uh, number. Uh, The first counterfeit bills showed up in Manhattan in 1938. Little did Secret Service realize at that time that Mr. 880 was a gentleman in his 60s by the name of Emmerich Jutner. He was 81, or excuse me, 61 years old when his wife passed away in 1937, and he, he realized he needed some income. <laughs> so why not? Mint money. So he figured with his experience in engraving and photography, he could do it. <clears throat> Here's the kicker. His fake bills were so poorly done that the Secret Service thought he was making fun of them. In fact, let me give you an example here. We'll just look at this. The top uh, $1 bill is real. The one below it is one that he minted. Uh, You'll notice that George Washington looks like he has on a death mask. Uh, He does not look good. The the quality of the paper was poor, but the the, the best part is he misspelled, uh, Mr. Emmerich uh, misspelled Washington over the uh, uh, Federal Reserve seal. That's a bummer. That's why the Secret Service. Here's the kicker. In Secret Service history, they spent more money trying to catch Mr. Emmerich. It took 10 years before they could find out who this gentleman was, and that story is interesting in and itself. But what we see, it's estimated that over $220 billion are lost annually due to counterfeit money. It's dangerous business, but far more dangerous, I would argue, are counterfeits within the church, big C. Peter knew this. As Peter is writing, remember, we've talked about this. This is the latter part. He's facing death, so we're, we're now in the 60s. The church has been growing. We now have a, almost a, a generation of folk that did not know Jesus personally, or, or they may not even know an apostle personally. And Peter's writing this letter to say to the church, look out, beware. The false teachers are infiltrating into the church. He uses a future tense here, but I would argue it has a present sense nuance that the false teachers in 1 Peter That wasn't an issue. The church was being insulted. Uh, Believers were being ridiculed. But now in 2 Peter, they're in the camp. And when we get to the epistle of Jude, we'll see very clearly they're within the camp. And Peter is warning the church, you you must be on guard. But in in this process that, that is unfolding, being mindful, Peter is saying to the church, the Lord gives you the resources you need to stand, stand strong. So we, we come to chapter 2, and I think it's important as we've been studying the bark on the tree that we take a step back and remember the layout of this epistle. As you can see here, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 was the opening, and then we come to the main content of the letter, which is the body, and Pastor Michael addressed uh, uh, the latter part of chapter 1, which was the criteria and the content of Peter's teaching. Peter says, hey, I was an eyewitness, but far more significant than my report is the word of God that you have. And, and the surety of it, because we stand on true prophets. And so you get to chapter 2, and it, it starts with but. <laughs> There's a contrast here. Those were the true prophets, the, the word that we received, and now we come to these false teachers. Now, in your notes, there's a little box there, and I thought it'd be helpful to review this. And if this is your first Sunday, uh, you'll be tested over this uh, later at the business meeting. I know we don't have, we have too much to discuss on what God's doing. Uh, if you're not a member, we, 
invite you to stay just to see. Uh, it's exciting what's happening at uh, 161st Street. Have you driven by the building? I know I keep saying this. Aren't those crosses dynamite? Uh, and we've had comments from folks saying, I saw the crosses and I'm now coming to your church. Any church that was, will put those crosses up, that's great. Uh, amen and amen. Anyway, let's get back to the false I know. Yay. False teachers. Look at the characteristics here. We'll keep this in mind as we go through the letter. They're skeptical of prophecy. In fact, they're going to, they're going to try to strip some elements of Christianity that they feel is embarrassing to the community and the world in which they live. They'll deny any future judgment. That becomes an issue here in chapter 2, the text that you just heard, because Peter's going to, to scream, you are going to be judged, just as those in, in the Old Testament were judged. They applaud freedom. You know, whatever works for you, that's fine. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> it should, sadly. And they endorse a lifestyle that says, you know, wh whatever you, makes you feel good, that's what you need to pursue. Oh, you know, this is, this is how it is. And so you're going to see this as we journey through uh, chapter 2 in the next couple weeks. Now, Peter is going to give us some, some specifics within the letter, and that's look what he says. He says in verse 1, But false prophets arose among the people, and there will be false teachers among you, and I would argue, and they are there. There is nothing more destructive, I would argue, for the church, and again, I'm speaking at large, church at large, than false teachers within the camp. It is the most dangerous. It, 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 it's, we assume we're all playing on the same field, <laughs> and it doesn't take too long to realize, wait a minute, we've got some wolves in the sheepfold. They claim to be God's people. Notice this. They said they're among the people. They're, they're, they're there. They're not God's people, but they're right in there with them. They're included. And that this is the great danger. One, one quote that I love says, whenever God erects a house of prayer, the devil always tries to build a chapel there. Uh, there's a lot of truth to that. The larger the ministry, the greater the bullseye that's placed on it by Satan. Straightest, greatest weapons, one of the greatest weapons that he has, I would argue, are so-called ministers of the gospel or professors of Bible. <laughs> Take heed. They know the lingo. I wasn't going to mention any names, but I will mention one. Bart Ehrman, who teaches at Duke, New Testament professor, has done everything he can to undermine the the integrity of the New Testament. You can Google him. You can listen to YouTubes. He went to Moody Bible Institute. He knows the lingo. He knows how to package it. And he's very dangerous. Boltmann, Rudolf Boltmann, taught in Germany in the 1950s at the church at Marburg. He was a professor of New Testament. And when he preached at Marburg, there was standing room only. He'd fill the pack, pack the house. Yet in the 1950s, Bart, or, um, Boltzmann stated, there is nothing we can know about the historical Jesus. Oh, wow. Unbelievable. These are, these are New Testament professors, and they know the language. 
They know what to say. They know what not to say. And they're dangerous. And Peter is saying, take heed. They claim they're, they're one of you. They're among you. But take, take very careful notice. And, and this is as well. Notice what he says. Just as there will be false teachers, they will infiltrate your midst. Second thing we see is they function secretly. <laughs> they're not wearing t-shirts that say, I'm a heretic. You know, it's, it's subtle. It's calculated. And it fits, right? The, the term here is sneakily, covertly, and just coming in. Irenaeus, an early church father from the second century, stated, Error indeed is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest being thus exposed, it should at once be detected. Those are easy to spot. He goes on, but it is craftily decked out in a, an attractive dress, so as by its outward form to make it appear to be inexperienced, more true than truth itself. The church can easily sort out, usually, cults, but it is far more difficult when they use the evangelical label and yet infiltrate the church. And again, I'm using big C here. What it implies, we need to be very careful. We need to be sitting up. We need to, to filter what we, we hear from the pulpit, what the lyrics of the song. These are things we need to be examining. Third, notice what the text tells us, what Peter says. It says, these false teachers who infiltrate, they will deny the master who bought them. In other words, they'll deny Jesus and his work on the cross. Now, I love how Peter words this. Did you catch this? They deny the master. That's a term used of supreme one. <clears throat> what does it imply? <laughs> You're his servant. You're not the master. This isn't a, a co-reign. So th the first thing we see is they're disobedient. Their allegiance should be to Jesus. Yet, like Satan of old, they want to share the stage. And that's not an option. Secondly, we see from that text that denying the master who bought them, I see disrespect. In other words, they fail to appreciate what Jesus has done for them on the cross. The term bought is always soteriological. In other words, it deals with salvation throughout the New Testament. In fact, true believers gladly confess that they are not their own, but they have been bought with the blood of Christ. The implications here are huge, but the bottom line between disobedience and disrespect, I would argue, is arrogance. I had many pre-seminary students. They went to a variety of schools after they graduated from undergrad, and I will tell you, the ones who were arrogant were the ones who scared me spitless. Because they thought they were above the text. And that is very dangerous. And sadly, many of them fulfilled what I suspect would happen. Disobedience, disrespect is linked with their denial of what Jesus has accomplished for them. And there is a side note here, by the way, uh, as one commentator writes, no assertion of universal redemption can be plainer than this. 1 John 2, he, Christ, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. In other words, Christ's atoning work rendered all men savable, 
But his redemptive work is effective only, hear this, to those who exercise faith in the Redeemer. In other words, they might preach about Jesus who died for their sins, but there is no personal relationship because they've never repented of their sins. I've met with people, you have too, who say, yeah, I know Jesus, good for you. The demons do too, and they fear and tremble. And I, you, you ask, what are you basing your salvation on? Or let me put it another way. What would you tell Jesus? Is he standing at the gate of heaven? Why should I let you in? Because you're a good person? Because you memorized the whole book of Psalms? I don't know. You gave a lot of money to the church? Mm -mm. There's only one way into heaven, and that's through what Christ accomplished on the cross. That's why what these false teachers are doing there's, they're, they're hindering salvation. The gospel cannot be tampered with. <laughs> it's dangerous business. And the, the horrific thing is, as we're going to see here in a minute, is that they will bring people along that will buy into this. So again, they might preach about Jesus, and they did, who died for their sins, but there is no personal relationship with Jesus. Why? Because they themselves have never repented of their sins. This week we buried a very dear friend of ours, Helen Blumenstock. She's with Jesus, but we certainly miss her. Rich, her husband, preached at the funeral. And I told my wife, don't ever ask me to preach at your funeral. <laughs> I don't know how he did it, apart from the Lord. But he shared her testimony she was a pastor's wife. He was pastoring. When she went to a women's conference and said, I don't know this Jesus. <laughs> I've given the lip service, but there's never been a transformation in my heart. Pastor's wife. So the next Sunday morning, she went forward for baptism. <laughs> and when she did, the former pastor's wife, who was a widow, went forward as well to get baptized because she too hadn't been saved. So what does it tell me? There are a lot of people going through the motion. And so I ask you this morning, where are you? Do, do you understand what it means to confess your sins and recognize Christ as your Savior? The false teachers are going to love to play with this. They don't want you to yield your life to Christ. And that sad part is, for them, we see here in the text, look at verse, this is stated twice actually here. We see this in, in the latter part of verse 1, as a result, they will bring swift destruction on themselves. And then in verse 3, it says, their condemnation pronounced long ago is not sitting by idly. Remember, these are the, the, the group that are saying, ah, there's no future judgment. What are you worried about? And Peter says, you're bringing destruction on upon yourselves. Why? Because Christ is the only means. And if you deny what he has done, you don't have any hope. And there's also going to be judgment because of what they're doing. We'll get to it in a minute. Destruction is mentioned five times in this epistle in the context of the false teachers. Notice what Peter says about the judgment of the false teachers. First of all, he says, it's self-inflicting. You are the ones, you, you cannot blame, you the false teachers, you cannot blame anyone else, your upbringing, your surroundings. It is you who have fallen guilty to this. Secondly, he says your destruction is swift. He's not referring to something that is necessarily soon, but something that is sudden. Again, 
they're acting as if they are untouchable. <laughs> we got this together. You can't get to us. And Peter says, you have no idea. It's going to hit you like a ton of bricks. Take heed. And finally, he says, it will be sure. In verse 3, we see this. You might think that it's the Lord has forgotten or that he's fallen asleep, but you will be judged. You might think you're getting away with it, but Psalm 44 and other texts tells us the Lord does not sleep or slumber. And the irony is in their, these deceivers are ultimately deceiving themselves. <laughs> you know the old line, you play with fire, you're going to get burned, kind of an idea. <laughs> you play with fast and foot free, whatever it is, fancy free with the gospel, you're in deep trouble. And what's really sad, as I mentioned earlier, and we see in the text in verse 2, many, the text tells us, will follow. It's interesting, that's the same term used where Christ says, follow after me. No, they're not following after Christ. They're following after the false teachers and their debauched lifestyle. Don't miss this. It's not just that they attend the seminars and listen to the, the podcast or their sermons, whatever. That is that these blind sheep are embracing the teachings by participating in immorality. False teaching and immorality go hand in hand. Why? Because false teachers make it easy for one to live a kind of life they desire. Remember one of the characteristics that's in that box? You become the determinant of truth. <laughs> Apart from scriptures, there is no standard or guide. We become what is determined. It's an egoistic system at the end of the day. And I can assure you that one's truth set will always be in keeping with one's vices if there's no Christ. Think about that for a minute. I mean, you know what I'm talking. It sounds harsh, but have you had an individual come to you and say, I, I need some advice? So you listen, you give them an advice, and what do they do? <sighs> you know, they get upset and storm off. Why? Because you didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. <laughs> And that's the problem with false teachers. And it can be the problem in the church is to say, thank you, Lord. I, I, I appreciate your holy suggestions, but I'm going to do it this way, right? <laughs> it's no wonder Martin Lloyd-Jones, the pastor of the Westminster Church in London during the 1900s, said this is probably the most difficult passage to hear and to preach because it's too close to home. It's not about an alternative lifestyle. It's not about some type of addiction. The bottom line is, who is God in your life? Where do you bend the knee? Do you listen to this? Or you say, nope, I'm going to rewrite the text. That's the problem with the false teachers. They've cut and pasted what they want. And consequently, they have tickled the ears, uh, text, uh, a phrase that Paul uses, they, the, 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 the people sitting in the pew are hearing this going, oh, I love that. Why? Because it resonates with what they're doing. No one wants to be told, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. Oh, thank you for applauding my choice. This is just who I am. Ugh. It's not what the text says at all. And, and consequently, their rhetoric is just, I mean, it's just glorious. Best thing they've ever heard. 
Some. Actually, not just some. The text tells us it's many will follow. He gives us another characteristic of the false teachers. Notice this. He says, they malign the way of truth there in chapter or verse 2. The way of truth is used throughout the New Testament to refer to Christ and his work. That is the gospel. Something that has been corrupted with human and social teaching. If it's been injected into the message, they've adulterated the truth. And that is not the gospel. There is the problem. Remember, it's subtle. Several years ago, it was revealed to me, I was talking to a, a former Bible colleague, and we were talking about some things, and he, he shared with me that a former president of a leading Christian university had spoken to a candidate for the Bible department, and the candidate said, I cannot adhere to this, this, and this in your doctrinal statement. And the president said, oh, don't worry about it, just sign it, no one really looks at those things anyways. Holy schmoles, right? How could this be? It's disguised under the cloak of false humility. These false teachers declare truth unknowable and doctrine, it's just irrelevant. While at the same time applauding tolerance, unity, and doubt. Careful, O oh church. We live in such a day. And notice finally in verse 3, we're told they will exploit. And in their greed, they will exploit you with deceptive words. The term there is greed. Whether it's money, sex, or power, that's what they're looking for. And that hasn't changed. It was true back in the garden as well. Oh, Eve. You could be like God. God doesn't want that power. Money, sex, you fill it all in. The bottom line is, it's what's driving the false teachers. They're not concerned about the things of the Lord. They're not concerned even about you, what Peter is saying. The words are redefined. Nuances are given. and intentional deception is undertaken. Several years ago, uh, this train of thought came through in New Testament studies where justification was redefined as a process. And righteousness, they argued, wasn't obtained till the end. Well, the real problem with that is 2 Corinthians 5. When you become a believer, Christ's righteousness is reckoned to your account. And, and to say justification is at the end, now we got a real problem. Because now works is part of the equation. I'm not justified because of what I do. I do what I do because I've been justified. And, and so... They played with the words, and that's the same thing you see here. Peter's saying, careful with deceptive words. It reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Timothy. Don't wrangle over words. Careful. In fact, he says, not only is it of no benefit, you bring ruin to those under you. If you're teaching the little ones, Sunday school, and we've got a lot of those out here, thank you. If you're teaching the Bible in a small group, and in a Sunday school class, you should enter it with fear and trembling. You're responsible, ultimately, for those who are listening. This isn't to be taken lightly. It's so that together we'll exalt Christ. And that those that are listening will grow in their walk with the Lord. The false teachers, they're not concerned about any of that. It's all about themselves. 
They are wearing a t-shirt. It says, me, right? You know, that's what they're looking for, is to exalt. They don't care the demise of those that are listening or undermining the faith. And Peter says, be on guard. Now, in verses 4 through 10a, the first part of 10, it's one long sentence in the Greek. <laughs> uh, talk about a run-on sentence, right? And it starts in verses 4 through 8 with the if part of a clause. It's a conditional sentence. So if this, this, and this, then in verse 9, he says, then this. So that's where he's headed here as he lays this out. And it's very clear. What Peter's going to do is he's going to say, these false teachers who are doing these things, judgment will happen. Why? Let me give you three exhibits. And it's glorious. Don't miss this as we go through, because what he does is he gives us two examples of how God protects the righteous in the midst of it. All right, so let's look at this. The first of these he's going to deal with is angels. Notice what he says. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but threw them into hell, uh, a better word here would be abyss. It locked them up, or Tartarus, you can give it a different name, uh, and locked them up in chains in utter darkness to be kept, and here's for the day of judgment, where then they will be cast into hell. And, and of course, the meaning is, which angel sinned? Are you, are you talking about uh, that which occurred in the, the fall of angels with Satan? And some would argue this. <clears throat> Others would argue, and this is where I land, but uh, I wouldn't go to a firing squad on it, but I think this is the context here. Uh, I would argue the reference is to a sin of, that angels committed, certain angels, fallen angels, committed back in Genesis 6. Genesis 6 tells us, when humankind began to multiply on the face of the earth, this is verse 1 of chapter 6, daughters were born to them, the sons of God, I would argue this is the angels, saw that the daughters of humankind were beautiful. They took wives for themselves from any that they chose. This is a standard view in Jewish intertestament literature. Those angels then are judged. According to Jude 6, it says, And the angels who did not keep to their domain, but deserted their own dwelling place. And it's in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah in Jude 6 with sexual perversion. I would argue these angels have been cast into utter darkness awaiting judgment day, which the text tells us. Remember in Luke, well, in the gospel accounts, you had the demoniac. And Jesus is about to cast out the demons named Legion. And they said, don't send us to the abyss. Don't, don't do that. So these demons knew where these demons were being held. Now again, you could disagree with me and that's fine. But one thing for certain, there are a group of fallen angels that are confined to a place waiting for the future judgment in hell. And that's a reminder that just as their judgment is sure, the same is sure for you all false teachers and all of you who embrace their teaching. It'll be sure. Now, I know that was a little crazy, but uh, it seems to be suggested there in the text. Notice he moves from angels, and he says, if he did not spare the ancient world but did protect, here's the first righteous individual that's protected, Noah, a herald of righteousness. And you say, I don't remember him being a preacher in the Old Testament. It's never cited. But in Jewish writings in the intertestament period, they viewed him as a preacher, one who, who proclaimed 
that the people of his day needed to repent or judgment was looming. Let me read you Josephus, first century Jewish historian. He says, Noah was very uneasy at what they did, his, the people of his day, being displeased at their conduct, persuaded them to change their dispositions and act better. But seeing that they did not yield to him, they were slaves to their wicked pleasures. Now notice what Josephus tells us. And Noah was afraid they would kill him, his wife, and his children. Notice what the text tells us. Go back to, to 2 Peter here. It was a herald of righteous along with the seven where God brought a flood to the ungodly world. And he did not, in this, I mean, talk about a bummer of a ministry. <laughs> Noah's preaching all these years, he's building this ark. No one joins them, right, except the, the seven. And, and certainly they're the minority in this process. I mean, you imagine the ridicule and disdain. Here's this crazy guy building a boat, uh, an ark out of Barky Barky. I mean, come on, right? I mean, this is nuts. It's never rain. What are you talking about rain? What do you mean? And yet God protects. And so whether you're at school, young people, I see some college kids back from, for spring break at the university in the workplace. You may be questioned, why are you so narrow? <laughs> do you really believe that Bible? Uh, and perhaps the ridicule even gets worse in the sense that you're not selected to be on the particular team or you're given, the, given a promotion or perhaps worse yet, you're involved in a lawsuit or you're terminated. But in the midst of it, God will preserve his people. The midst of judgment upon, I mean, talk about a cataclysmic judgment. The whole world is swallowed up in water. Noah's protected. Why? Because we are told he's a herald of righteousness. God preserved and protected Noah. There's one more judgment. Again, remember we're in this if stage of the conditional sentence. If God didn't spare the angels, if he dealt with Noah's generation, and then he gives... I mean, you, you knew we were going here, right? Throughout Scripture, Sodom and Gomorrah is used time and time again. Interestingly, it's often used as an example of God's judgment rather than the lifestyle. In fact, Peter doesn't even talk about the lifestyle of those involved in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah other than he's just talking about judgment. No, he says, if, if he turned to ashes, I love that. We got the water judgment, now we got the fire judgment. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, when he condemned them to destruction, literally it's catastrophic is the word being used there. He appointed them to serve as an example to future generations of the ungodly. He rescued Lot. Don't miss that. And then he says of Lot, he's righteous. Three times. Now, I don't know about you, but Lot is not a candidate for righteousness in my book. <laughs> I mean, the guy, first of all, he was greedy, took the best parcel of land from his, his uh, relative, Ogo and Abraham, right? And then we read later in Genesis, he's sitting at the gate. He's become a political figure within Sodom. He, he's a leader. You've got to be kidding. And then let's not forget the night those two guests came, and to shield them, Lot says, you can take my daughters. Really? You call him righteous? And we won't go in what happens after Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. We all know that account. Really? That he's righteous? 
It's important to understand how Peter uses the term righteousness. Green in his commentary makes this very important point. Righteousness characterizes God's saving act. And the Christian faith is described as the way of righteousness. Lot wasn't perfect. Abraham wasn't perfect. I'm not perfect. But Lot did display righteousness in the sense that, one, he took in those guests to protect them. We see that. We also know, remember Abraham? He prayed, Lord, he starts way high. He gets down to 10. Lord, if there's just 10 righteous people, and of course, there's not even 10. But it implies that that Lot was righteous. At least Abraham understood it as such. And we're, we're, set, we're told something else. Look at verse 8. And while he lived among them day after day, that righteous man was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. He's tormented. He's surrounded by wickedness, and Lot was internally oppressed. It speaks of mental anguish. He had moral perception. And so I would argue Peter is making a moral contrast here between Lot, the righteous, and those of Sodom and Gomorrah, the unrighteous. He's not going, he doesn't explore the ambiguities of Lot's life here. But for the purpose of the argument to the false teachers, your judgment will come just as it did to Sodom and Gomorrah. And to us as saints, Listening to this, it's a reminder, God watches over us. Even Lot, who was less than righteous, but he's still righteous in the sense of what God has done in and through him. And then notice how Peter concludes here. He says, if all of this, then, here we come, the Lord knows, and I love this, he doesn't start with judgment, he starts with the righteous. The Lord knows how to protect his own Right? The Lord is how to rescue the godly from the trials. Isn't that great? He, recu recu he rescued us as followers of Jesus from the penalty of sin and death. We can stand at a graveside knowing Helen's with the Lord because she placed her faith in him. That's rescue. And to reserve the unrighteous, the text tells us, for the punishment at the day of judgment. Especially those, watch this, who indulge their fleshly desires, that's the greed, and despise authority. And you ask, how do they despise authority? Well, they corrupted the message about Christ. They tampered with the gospel. Not good. You didn't write the gospel. You didn't give us the gospel. So why do you think you have any business messing with the gospel? They, they minimized the work of Christ and his sovereignty, and they eliminated the need for Christ. And so thus they have despised the authority. Well, you say, it's okay, how does that apply to me? And as I look at this text, what, what do I walk away with here? It's a bit of a, a bummer downer. I mean, yes, it's great the Lord protects, but whew, this is heavy stuff. In your notes, I've given you three points. First of all, one of the greatest dangers for followers of Jesus is the danger of compromise. 
An individual who's living for the Lord will need to stand in this dark world. The resounding message, unfortunately, that I often hear within the church, again, big C, the general church, is, oh, we just need to overlook our differences. We need to stand together. Doctrine should not divide. Focus on the majors, that is, loving the disenfranchised and embracing the social needs around us. That message is not new. We see it here in the Petrine epistles, first and second Peter, and it was true in the day of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He makes this statement in 1940. Listen to this statement, 1940. He says, it is a very difficult thing at such a time to stand for truth and to say that truth matters even more than unity. Wow. And over and above this question of numbers and a common stand is the purity of the faith and the honest declaration of the word of God as we are given to see it. We're called to stand. Will we be ridiculed by the world? Yes. But sadly, I would argue there are times that we need to even stand within the church, big C. Martin Luther, he was labeled a heretic because he stood on what does it mean to be declared righteous before God. William Tyndale, translated the Bible into English, was labeled a heretic by the church, strangled to death, and then his body burned at the stake. Why? Because he translated the Bible into English. That wasn't the world that burned his body. That was the church. To compromise the gospel and the clear teachings of Scripture will ultimately lead, listen to this, moral, political, social, and economic chaos. Where does compromise originate? It's when we do not love the things of the Lord, but we love the things of the world. What are they? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, in the pride of life. And take heed, it's subtle. It's not one day you wake up and decide, usually, and I'll have someone wake up and decide, today I'm, I'm going to embrace this. No, it's, it's a drifting. And we need to be, take heed. Secondly, as followers of Jesus, we need to be burdened about the state of our world. Sin, <laughs> I don't need to tell you this, surrounds us. Just look at the news. It should cause us to fall on our knees and pray for a great awakening. Lot was troubled by the sin of the world. It's not enough to shake our heads and say the world is going to hell in a handbasket. We have to be burdened about our world. Do we cry out to God for the sin that surrounds us? For how individuals are enslaved to porn, drugs, sexual addiction, confusion over sexual identity, to those who are oppressed and abused by others. Do we pray that God would send a reawakening among us? When's the last time you've prayed that? The true identity of Christ that we have, those who've placed their faith in him, we've been cleansed of our sin that's been experienced through the gospel and that gives us power to live today and it gives us hope for the future. And finally, as I look at 2 Peter and I look at these false teachers, no matter the darkness of the hour, and it's only gonna get darker, if scripture is correct, and it is, <laughs> the Lord promises to deliver his people. He did it at the time of Noah. He did it 
with Lot and his family. And I have to confess, this week I have struggled. <laughs> I've struggled seeing the effects of sin upon humanity. To stand at a graveside and to bury a dear friend because of the sin of death that has come. To, to, to look at the news and to see young people addicted. And the list goes on and on and the confusion that we give those all around us. And it seems like evil keeps having the upper hand. I remember this text just kept coming to me and it was so timely, though I, you see this and you realize, no, no, no. What Peter is saying is true and it's wonderful. There's a day coming when all this crud is gonna be dealt with. And in the process, the Lord goes before his people. The problem with the false teachers is ultimately they did not recognize the sovereignty of God and his love. And oh church, don't miss it. In the midst of the crud, don't miss who we serve. Psalm 62, for God alone my soul waits in silence. My hope is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. O oh God, rest my deliverance and my honor. My mighty rock, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. We, O oh church, need to be vigilant in the face of false teaching. It's in the church, big C. When Christian bookstores still existed, <laughs> brick and mortar, you'd go and there's the, the religious section, or even now, you go to the bookstore and there's the religious section. Ugh, I get gas. I don't even walk by it anymore. It just it makes me sick. This is the church? This is what we have to offer? One of the safeguards against the false teachers and being succumbed to this is holding fast to the truth. This holding is certainly found in knowing the scriptures, but I would argue it's a continual reminder that Jesus Christ has bought us. We are his, and we must hold fast. One of the ways we remind ourselves as believers is through communion, and you should have received one of these as you entered. If you know Christ as your Savior, if you are a follower of him, this is for you this morning. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, that's the first step. And we'd love to show you from God's word how you know you can be saved. But communion is a great time for us just to step aside for a minute and, and recognize again, once again, that Christ has bought us. And we don't want to fall victim to where the false teachers are that despise that. But we need to recognize, no, he is our master. He is our savior. So let's spend some time with the Lord, making sure we're coming to this table with pure hearts this morning.
to whom shall we go for salvation <laughs> but you alone? Your son said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to you but through him. There's so many false teachers and others who are clamoring in our ears that would love to strip that truth that your son is the only way. It might be for out of greed, it might be out of well intent, but at the end of the day, it, it discredits the cross and what your son accomplished for us. And so, Father, we thank you. Thank you for our blessed Savior, who is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. And this is his name we pray. Amen. The Lord took the bread that night. Can't help but think of John 6. I am the bread of life and all that that entailed for the disciples. And it had to be quite something when he took it that night and he broke it. And then he blessed it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. <laughs> for you. Isn't I, I came for you. So do this in remembrance of me. <laughs> Same way he took the cup. <laughs> the one who is going to give his life for even false teachers. So this is available. Because I'm willing to give up my blood for you. He said, this cup is the new covenant, my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, we stand in awe of the one who came on our behalf. And throughout history, you have made provisions for your people. It's always through faith. The content of the faith has changed through your revelation. But we see Noah placing his faith in you, even Lot. And Lord, we are called to place our faith in what you've revealed, and that's through your son, Jesus. Lord, who came to earth to die on a cross, to pay our sin, to pay what we should have needed to pay in order that we can have a restored relationship with you. And we're told, whoever calls upon his name, confessing sin, will be saved and have a relationship. Lord, thank you. You've also stated in your word that judgment is sure. It's, it will occur. Despite what the world might say, despite what false teachers might declare, there is a day coming. And Father, as followers of Jesus, our heart breaks because we see what's happening around this globe, a world that desperately needs you. May we be a herald of righteousness such as Noah, ready to declare what is true and what is wrong. In Jesus' name.